From Koningstein Road in the east to Cetus Gap in the west, an orange curtain has descended across the Ojai Valley. This is Ojai Talk of the Town. Hey everyone, Brett Bradigan, editor of your Ojai Magazines, the monthly and quarterly. Our guest this episode is Matt Henriksen. For the past uh, more than decade, the manager of Bart's Books, the world famous outdoor bookstore. Uh, we have a really great conversation. As you probably know, if you're a regular listener, Bart's Books is one of the cultural centerpieces of Ojai, and Matt is right in the middle of it, and a great book lover, and the conversations that ensue from that are wonderful. Been looking forward to this one for a long time. Hope you enjoy as well. Hey, Matt, thanks for joining me. Absolutely. Yeah, we were just talking about the Poet Laureate event, which was a big get. So I'm, I'm happy to say that I had very little to do with that. If, if, as Bards continues to grow and expand, I'm going to need people that can take on some roles and help it do that. And my wonderful employee, Emma Bailey, is the one who's responsible for that. She's been running the events programs for the last year. And although she is going to be leaving soon, I'm hoping to find somebody that will do something similar to what she's doing. Anybody who does it is going to make it their own. Mm-hmm. But uh, for her, she has a, a very clear vision of she what she wants the events to be. And I kind of have a, a, a vibe on what that is, but I need to get her to ex- make that more explicit. She's written an mm-hmm. explicit description of what her role will be. But she got him because he has local roots. Like oh, he has family, family in Carpinteria. No, just so people know these, I thought he was from like Fresno or Great Central Valley somewhere, right? Yeah, and that's that's where he lives now. Um, mm. And I think he has some roots there too. But he has family that, it, like I said, I think is in Carpinteria and nearby. Oh yeah, that's right. I did. Yeah, yeah. So, so in some ways, it's easier to get people that have some other reason to be here because we're not going to get big authors on tour for the most part. We might we might build to a place where we'll get that occasionally, and we have contingency plans in place if our, our courtyard can hold about 60, 70 people total. So if we have an yeah. audience that's bigger than that, uh, we have plans in place for that. But yeah, we're, we're not really reaching for that either. We're reaching for authors that can present stuff that is of interest and use to the community. And mm-hmm. that community includes people who live in the Ojai Valley, but also people that are parts of the Bart's Book community. Yeah. Well, this gentleman, he's uh, Korean, right? Or Korean-American? I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it was... Uh, just a great tradition that comes out of the Central Valley with literature. I'm thinking not just of of uh, Steinbeck, but uh, William Saroyan yes. and some of those great family dramas absolutely. that extend over generations. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So um, Emma is uh, Jim Bailey's daughter, mm-hmm. a friend of the pod as well. I think Jim's actually been on like twice. But um, where's she going? Where's Emma going? I've known her since she was a tiny baby. Yeah, and I've known Jim for a long time. Um, she is going first to Paris and then moving to Denver, Colorado. For a to, job? No, uh, she's moving with her current beau, and she has plans. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what industry she's going to go into, but she needs to be in a city doing city stuff for a while and yeah. seeking the expansiveness that that has to offer. Like, as much as Bart's will continue to grow and expand, there's kind of limits on what she's going to be able to do there sure. in terms of income, but and also in terms of capacity. Like capacities, yeah. that's right. Interesting. And what about yourself? I know you've been in the job now for what, 15, 14, 12, 13, 14 years? 11, 12 years, something like that. Somewhere midway through 2011, toward the end of 2011. Yeah. So you you worked there. 
before, didn't you? I did. I did. This is a story I tell a lot. I was I was working across the street at an insurance office. Um, Doug Crawford? Not, not Doug, Doug Crawford. It's a small insurance company that does commercial industrial insurance in big cities. Oh, Sherry Ann Kate? No, not her either. It's, <laughs> <laughs> There's so many little insurance offices Don, Don, around. Don, I never thought about that. Donna Meyer. She doesn't even really oh, offer, okay. like, advertise or offer her insurance locally. Because, again, it's big commercial industrial yeah. insurance that's in cities far away. And uh, I got fired because I was doing a bad job because I didn't like my job. And I walked across the street, and the current manager, Dave Ray, was there with mm-hmm. his buddy, buddy Jay, smoking cigarettes out in front. Like, they were all most several times a day. And I would stop and talk to them. David was, I liked him. He was a good dude. Yeah, yeah. He speaks highly of you too. And so he said, well, what are you going to do for money? I'm like, I got a little money saved. I might move to a city or what? He's like, what are you going to do in the meantime? I'm like, yeah, I could probably use some income. He's like, do you want to be like a maintenance guy here? Yeah. So he asked me if I could paint. So I painted some stuff. I'd swung some nails. I did a lot of cleaning stuff up. Just general maintenance stuff for the building. And uh, when it came time for him to move along, uh, he recommended to the owners that I be the one that manage it. Like they interviewed nice. some people that didn't like anybody, and they said to interview this guy. He'll you probably like him, and they did. And, nice. uh, well, you had a literature background. Some you always been an avid reader, I imagine. Yes, I studied philosophy and art, but uh, I've been reading literature my whole life. And I'm, I'm the, the one of the things people ask me frequently is like, how do you know all this stuff? And the truth is, that I don't. I'm a dilettante. Mm-hmm. Like I know, yeah. I know just enough about everything to be continue to be interested in it. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to manage a large general used bookstore, the best thing you can be is curious about almost everything. Yeah, no yeah. kidding. <laughs> yeah. Now, where'd you grow? Where'd you grow up? Where you grow? I grew up here. Um, in Ohio. Yeah, my Tony. my great grandparents immigrated into the Port of Los Angeles in 1938, and they from moved, from Norway, Finland. Finland. Yeah, and they moved up here shortly after thereafter, and my family's mostly been here since. What do what do they do? What's the? Um, I mean, none of them are around anymore, obviously, and, yeah. and they have since dispersed. There's a big portion of the family that now lives in the Bay Area. Um, my great uncle Ray was a when he was a young man worked for a gardener, and he actually worked for Krishnamurti. Oh, personally? <laughs> Not personally, for but, the but for, the, for, for the gardener that tended the grounds and that kind of stuff. So, wow, yeah. nice. Yeah, but uh, now most of my family's not here. It's me, uh, my mother's nearby in, in the county, but not in Ohio anymore. And my sister is preparing to move to Maine. Um, hmm. Part of this, for the same reasons Emma Bailey is leaving, to seek greater opportunity. Yeah, some diversity of experience. That, and to increasingly the cost of living here is untenable for many people. Oh, God, don't even get me started. <laughs> this is this is one of the reasons that Emma is leaving, is she... Cannot need, afford to live here. Yeah, that's right, that's right. And this, this is something that I've been talking about with other booksellers, because it's a recurring problem in California. Who is my labor pool? <laughs> and mm-hmm. in a lot of big city small bookstores, it's uh, college students largely. But we don't have a college here. Like Jesse Phelps. Yeah. yeah. Six fourteen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't have we don't have that labor pool here. So my my uh, labor pool is increasingly going to be retirees and high school students and, and people retirees. That, I didn't think about that. And people that just want a little extra income, like or want something to do. Right? that don't need the money but want something to do. And they just want to be around that scene. That's right. Which has its own culture. That's right. I like, uh, well, when I first moved to Ojai in 1999, I whole stopped di- at a... Whole different world then. <laughs> well, Bars Books was still the same. But I was, you know, coming across, you know, like a Oki, like, a, you know, Henry, uh, Henry Fonda and 
Grapes of Wrath, and I had my trailer, and I had my dog. And I stopped to see a friend of mine in Phoenix and had a party. I said, I'm moving to Ojai. Guy's like, yeah, I know where that is. That's the famous uh, outdoor bookstore. And I go, yeah, isn't that interesting? That's the first thing that comes up in people's minds. It, it's funny to you that you tell the story from that perspective because I can't tell you in the last couple years how many people that will come in and be like, oh, I've lived here for two years and I've never been here. Really? Two years? Or longer sometimes. Yeah, I'd heard about, probably more than one time, I'd heard about Bar's books before Ojai even popped up on my radar. And, and now that our tourist destination status is even more cemented, I often get people that's like, this is my third or fourth trip to Ojai and I've never been here. Yeah. Which, you know, I don't have a problem. If you don't really want to read, you don't want to understand books, I get it. It's not for everybody. It does remind me, uh, the sort of outdoor vibe is like those great book stalls along the Seine. Yeah, that's that's the inspiration. And, and in fact, oh, is that it, true? In the store on the wall, there's a pasted picture of the Buccaneers along the Seine, and uh, the founder Richard Bartonsdale observed those Buccaneers when he was discharged after serving in the Second World War. He was hanging around in Paris. And the rumor is that that was his inspiration for the store. I, I don't tell. It. <laughs> yeah, that's very cool. So it was uh, just a standard property at the time, although a big one. So it's actually two properties co-joined. So the one property is pretty large. It's a corner lot with a one-bedroom 1930s little cottage on it. Mm. And then it also occupies a portion of the property next door. There's a little room underneath that was formerly a garage where currently houses our literature. And if my plans happen in the future, it will be the place where all of our book intake and buying will happen as well yeah. as processing. Yeah. It'll be like the book fair part. Huh? Yeah, where, where people come to sell us stuff because as our traffic has increased, the friction between people trying to sell us stuff and us trying to handle sales has increased. Mm -hmm. And I think separating those two areas and making them clearer will be better for the business. Yeah, you won't be constantly distracted between one thing and the other. Yes. Yeah. Well, speaking of which, I'm always curious about these. I, I just remember that Larry McMurtry novel, um, Cadillac Jack. I haven't read that one. That guy goes around and, <clears throat> well, it's typical Larry McMurtry character, that kind of uh, thoughtful owner. And he's going around and he finds these people selling stained glass, shards of stained glass by the roadside. And when he was like, you know, what am I going to do with this? But he notices them wrapping up the glass in this sort of parchment. And he looks at it, it's like some Mongol map from the 13th century. Is worth like $87,000. And that was the kind of stuff that he would find. I just wonder, have you ever come across any of these first editions signed by authors, anything that really goes into that upper echelon? No, I, I have never in my 10 years there come across, by fortune, something more valuable than it ought to be. Um, almost all of the better high-end books that I have acquired, I've acquired from somebody at their fair market value. <laughs> Who they know is yeah. worth. Yeah, or or if not, I've told them, like, hey, I think this is worth something. I, I will pay you this much for the rest of the collection. Let me do some research, and I'll figure out what to pay for this. But no no windfalls. No, nothing worth more than 50 or or $100, which is... Really? Yeah. Well, what are some of those that... I mean, I imagine the big... Coffee table books probably fetch a good price. I see you have them. The window display is always interesting there at Barts. I, I do. I guess the closest thing to a windfall, and it was only a couple thousand dollars, and we've handled books that cost eight or $9,000 in my time mm -hmm. there. So, like, 
the only thing I've had that was like a windfall is I bought a large collection from a house that had to be cleared out. And they did, somebody felt bad about throwing the books away. So I, mm. I encounter all kinds of distant circumstances under which people are divesting themselves of their collections. But um, this one was just like, hey, you got to come in the next week and we'll take whatever you offer. And so I just bought a bunch of stuff. And most of it was regular stuff. It was nicer, older copies of things, reading copies I was going to sell for six, seven, eight dollars. And then I came across this one weird thing I picked up because it had photos and I liked it. And it was a illustrated by for photo illustrated manual of jujitsu published in China. I, I don't remember the year, but it was early because jujitsu doesn't come from China, right? It comes from mm. Japan. Okay. <laughs> and and it was a manual, I think, largely for training police officers of Chinese Interesting. police. So this would have been post-World War II? Or, I, I or? think so. I think if I remember right, yeah. it was. And it was the second ever book published in the English language on mm. the art of jujitsu. Wow. And it was heavily, heavily photo illustrated. And my favorite part about it is it had like photos of children tumbling, mm -hmm. like wrestling. And, and it was like, like in full geese and everything. Like, like this is for everybody. Here's how it can help police officers. Here how, here's how it can help children. So it's the kind of thing there, not a lot of them were published, a couple thousand at most, 32, 3,000 was the print run because mm -hmm. it was a manual. And probably very expensive too to print back then with photographs and yeah. plates. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Fairly expensive. And so it's like, it's the sort of thing where. I sold it for I think twenty five hundred bucks hmm. to somebody in the jujitsu world or book collecting world or some Venn diagram of both. So, so mostly when I have something that's that expensive, it takes two to five years to for it to sell. That's that's what I expect when I buy a book that's two thousand yeah, dollars. I expect to be at, at probably five years, at two years at least, most of the time. Um, but this particular one, uh, I'm friends with Mason. Who oh, runs um, Treasure Row? Uh, yeah, tr uh, Katrina, Katrina Mason, Sun, Mason. Sexton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Katrina yeah. Sun, yeah. yeah, and his partner Amanda. I'm friends with them. We love talking the used goods business. And they, when they get something good, they send me pictures of it. And then yeah. I see well, I do know that they had the one of the original golden spikes for the Intercontinental yes. Railroad. Yeah, he showed me that. Wow, that was very <laughs> cool. Yeah, researching, and so it's like, it's, a, it's, a, it's a similar business. I'm more specialized, mm -hmm. but uh, I had mentioned this to them. They're like, hey, what do you got at this cool lately? I'm like, oh, I got this weird jujitsu thing. And it just so happened that it isn't this is another good reason for us to communicate, for me at least, it's only served me so far, but <laughs> <laughs> I send people there all the time. But yeah. uh, a, a gentleman asked about uh, martial arts swords. Do you have any Japanese swords or Asian swords or anything? Katana swords. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, was a, he had practiced Krav Maga and he had practiced uh, I think uh, Kung Fu, and he was just interested in martial arts. They're like, well, this guy down the street has this cool martial arts book. So he just came over and bought it right away. Like, yeah, uh, that's he two knew weeks. What he wanted. That's the fastest I've turned around an item like that. And that was that was that was the closest thing to that sort of windfall kind of thing. But it really doesn't happen that much. It seems like there's got to be like Reddit forums or collectors forums and stuff like that. I, I dabbled in those for a while, and I was. It didn't pay off. It turned out I was mostly just answering people's questions and trying to steer them away from leaping to conclusions. And yeah. this is a phenomenon you see with people who, all the time, and if they, they know just a tiny bit about a field but not a lot, it's mm -hmm. easy to assume that you know more than you do. Oh, well, the Dunning Kruger effect. <laughs> Correct. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and so you see this all the time when people people want to sell me books. I got old books. It's like, well, these old books suck. Nobody wants these. Do you know how many books there are in the world? Like. Your, your, the age of the book isn't going to make it valuable. Uh, some of that's changing. Like you see, I often see ridiculous prices on books that aren't even first printings. So you get a second or third printing of a book going for a couple mm -hmm. hundred bucks. And it's like, yeah, okay, if the market says so, sure. But yeah. I don't believe that's going to hold long term. <laughs> no. But yeah, I find those forums are mostly like that. They're for, at least for book 
I know, I know people that deal in rare instruments and stuff, and they can be a little better for that if you can find the right place, but I haven't found a good one for books yet. Interesting. It does seem like it's quite a field of interest for people. So um, now that you know, you've got a decade or more under your belt, how, how, is, how is the reading taste changed? In Ohio and just in your world. I, I should have known this. And, you know, you just learn by experience. Everything's cyclical as part mm-hmm. of it. The, even the things you think of today as canonical and important might, that might shift again in the future. Mm-hmm. Like Shakespeare was basically forgotten for 150 years. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And so one of the things that um, reified this for me, really concretized it, was buying the collection of a former bookseller out of Santa Paula. His kids were selling it to me. He owned a bookstore, maybe he closed his bookstore 25, 30 years ago. Yeah. And he had just had the remaining inventory still, and he had some collectible stuff. One of the good things I had there was like a uh, first edition of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas that was signed by, Ra- signed by Ralph Steadman. Not, nice. signed by, not signed by Hunter, but signed by Ralph, which was cool. Yeah. Um, was it a hardcover? Yeah, yeah. It, you know, if a book's issued, so there's there's some things like preferred editions too, and hmm. when a book's issued, there are many books that are issued simultaneously in paperback and hardcover. Um, mm-hmm. A kind of more famous contemporary novel that's like that is um, Gravity's Rainbow. Oh, wow, yeah. Was, that was interesting. But, but, but everybody always prefers Well, the there's hardcover. a Thomas Pinchon connection to Ojai because of that movie uh, Inherent Vice. Yeah, he, he briefly mentions Ojai, and California is always one well, of those like things Well, there's like a whole set, a whole series of scenes in Ojai. Which uh, made us seem like a bunch of loony hippies. We are. <laughs> yeah. I, I recognize myself in there a little bit. Yeah. But uh, uh, that, that bookseller's collection, when I went to research it, because he had prices on all his books, of course, and his prices were at least 30 years old. Some of them, if he'd had them in inventory for a while, were older than that, right? Mm. So um, many things had shifted in value. So, some of them had gone up. Some of them had gone down. For instance, the hunter had gone way up. And you might think that that's just going to be the case of all things, but it's not because in the early 80s, Hemingway wasn't that well regarded at that time. Mm-hmm. Like, and now he's been, you know, rehabilitated in the literary world and stuff. I don't know. I don't know anything about the history of how that process happened or why, but, it, yeah. but it, he's become. And then he had a bunch of Chester Himes who a couple first editions. Almost nobody I talk to now knows who he is, especially if they're under 40. I don't know who he is. Ah, a really famous crime and mystery writer, black guy. And his... his oh, like, um, well, we have uh, Easy Rollins. Um, yeah. Yeah, but older than What's his name? That. I'm forgetting. Uh, Walter Mosley. Yeah, Walter Mosley. Those yeah. are great books. They are. I've read a couple of those. I didn't know about Ch- Chester Himes. i got to check that out. Yeah, if you like crime and mystery writing, it's like, it's got a real 60s and 50s vibe, and it's the black urban experience of those times. And that stuff was that probably in the 70s and 80s held in a little bit higher regard. Now, I wouldn't it's say he's forgot. Right he's forgotten for fans of the genre or fans mm-hmm. of black literature. He's not forgotten. But, but he doesn't have that broad broad appeal. Right. Like he right. used to, maybe. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, speaking of that sort of black literature canon, I really picked up that book just by accident. Paul Mooney. I'm trying to remember the name. I can't, oh, I wish I had. Oh, he's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you but remember it's the about name. The, you know, the re, reification is a gardener in South Central. Yeah, and he's like the reification of slavery that goes on. It's just yeah. the what a social commentary that was. Yeah, it's like very Thomas or very uh, Swiftian. I've never time. read any of Mooney's books. I've seen his comedy. I like him a lot. But uh, for somebody who published a lot of books, who's also in comedy and social commentary, I like Dick Gregory from that time. Oh, of course, Dick yeah. Gregory's yeah, yeah. one of the classics. Yeah. Yeah. 
he was something. How many times did he run for president? Like three or four. At times. least, yeah, yeah. That was great. And his stuff always sells when I get it in. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, that that stuff, especially with the you know the conversation about race in America and stuff, has done well for me again recently. Uh, yeah. I've bu- I buy as much black literature in Americana as I can. The only thing that's in that genre that I've, I've bought and have had trouble selling is I bought a collection of Ebony magazines in the late 60s. Hmm. Yeah. And it's, like a complete set? Like you had all 12 issues from 1973? They're, they're thin little tiny magazines. I have a stack maybe eight inches high. I don't know how many it is. I don't remember if it's complete or not. But, you know, there's some pretty significant issues. you got covers that feature Martin Luther King, uh, Malcolm X, mm-hmm. uh, cover featuring Al- Alan Alda because he was dating a black woman at the time, so it was mm-hmm. a hot topic for them with interracial dating. Um, but for some reason, I could never get anybody to bite on those. So um, mm-hmm. that, that's the sort of thing after I cycle through it and put it in a case, put it on display, show it a couple times, I just put it, put it on eBay. I don't sell a lot of stuff on the internet anymore, but yeah. I can only hold on to inventory so long before I have to turn it back into capital. Yeah, capital. I mean, you, do, you have a, a lot of space, but yeah. how many, what about, you have, you must have like well over 10,000 volumes there. They, Dave counted at one point and they estimated somewhere around 150. 150,000 yes. volumes. But crazy. I will say that in my time there, I have mostly shrunk the self spa- shelf space and d- got rid of inventory. So it's probably closer to 110, 120,000 now. Still, wow. I'm going to keep it lean. I'm going to have, but I want to have less books on the shelf that people aren't interested in. Now, how do you um, manage the inventory? It's got to be like, like, how do you know where everything is? So I, I don't know if you thought about this when you invited me on the podcast, but it's the 60th anniversary this year. Um, well, yes, I did. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. You're one step ahead of me. Yeah, no, I, yeah that's true. 1964. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, one of the many things that I intend to institute this year, and it's been on my back burner for a while because I know it's going to be a headache, is a piece of POS software and hey, your inventory management, management Oh, system. got your point of sale software. Yeah, and, and an inventory management system along with that. And uh, I haven't figured out the entire logistics of it yet, but we're going to start just with our new books because we started carrying new books maybe seven years ago, whenever, lo- whenever table of contents closed. Oh, yeah, Bobby Houston. What year is that, 2015, 2016? Um, I thought it would have been earlier, but maybe you're right. Local Hero closed first, and then Table of Contents. And I don't think that was Bobby even then by that point. It was, uh, I think it was an Italian guy, like Ennio or something like that. Oh, um, uh, um, shoot. uh, He had the wedding magazine. Yeah. Um, he was only. I wish I could remember. He was a nice guy. I think it was Ennio or Elio. I, Elio Zarmati. Yeah, 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 yeah. Got it. Yes. Yeah. And I think he owned it at that point. And I'm not even sure if he's the one who owned it when Table finally closed. He might have been. Yeah. Isn't that where Feast Bistro went in? Uh, I think so, yes. Yeah. It was a big deal. Yeah. yeah. So, so when they closed, I made the kind of foolhardy at the time. I, I, didn't know, I didn't know anything about the new book business. I only know new books, used books. But I decided there should be someplace offering new books in town, and it might as well be me, because people are already coming to me for books. And I kind of understood retail um, under my tutelage from Joe and Lorraine at Job and Joe, good mm-hmm. friends of mine. And they, they let me, because I was bored, learn a little bit more about everything else. They took me to trade shows, learn some of the formulas. Uh, they taught me about the basics of retail. And I've been going to use bookstores my entire life. And I, again, curious about everything. So I was kind of well suited to use books, but new books mm-hmm. is its whole thing in terms of like distribution I'm networks sure and terms and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I had to learn all that. But, but uh, 
since COVID during the pandemic, the demand for newer books and more specific books mm -hmm. has really skyrocketed. And I'm just like, I have to lean into this because I have the market here. Mm -hmm. And probably the best thing I can do is serve this market that's already here in front of me, coming to me, asking me for these yeah, things. Yeah, you've got generations of loyal customers. Yeah, yeah. So, so we'll start with the new books, inventorying that, and then slowly we'll add incoming used books. But we have to make some big infrastructural change, like I mentioned, where that one room is going to become all of our intake. So as of now, we don't really have an inventory system. Like no, that's where we're it's at. It's just institutional memory. Yes. And that is not the most effective strategy. No, but I do think that for the experience of a bibliophile to just stumble across some wonderful find by accident. Yeah. And that'll still happen. That I, I really believe that the charm of serendipity is something that used bookstores have to offer. That's yeah, a that's, that's a product, an experiential quality that we can offer the people, and so that will not go away. You'll still mm -hmm. be able to do that, but more and more. And part of this is because of you know, I don't know the exact statistics. For a long time, bookstores were closing, and then more recently, in the last couple of years, they've been opening mostly in urban areas. But there are still many, many people who have. Mm -hmm in their life, adults that have never been to a bookstore or been to very few. Like we're talking young adults here. And I, I blew my couple of my employees' minds the other day. I was talking to Emma and we're talking about how to handle customers and provide service and help them ha handle the overwhelming experience. Curate with their experience. That's right. And and I, I said, you know, I hadn't thought about it this way, but there are many people who come here that we will be the only bookstore they go to this year. Yeah. I'm sure for many people. Yeah, and when when it's like that, like how are they supposed to navigate or intuit the way things are? They're not. They need somebody to like guide them and offer mm -hmm. assistance and offer service. So, point them in the right direction. Yeah, and I, I think an inventory system will allow us to help that person more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess you can just wander around on your own, but then maybe something occurs to you that you want to get more specific about, and then having somebody there. I, I very intentionally will ask, given the time and how many customers I have, I will ask somebody if they're there for an hour or more at least three times if they need help. Yeah. That after the third time, I give up. Because but, you know they don't need help. They'll but, figure it out. But usually the second or third time they say, actually, yes, I thought of something. And sometimes after the third time, they'll come up to me and be like, hey, actually, I thought of something. So. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Now, the honor system with the uh, outdoor shelves, I remember uh, Gary... Gary Schlichter telling me that that was his kids live for that. They just get out of bed first thing in the morning. They go see who threw coins over the tran over the door there, and I just I just thought that was like one of those charming, quirky, very ojai things. It is. How does that work? Is it also a problem? We don't, no, nobody throws stuff over the wall anymore. We have a slot in the door just to make it easier for us to clean it up. Um, I, it's never been a problem. The, the biggest problem that causes now is sometimes people leave stuff out there, think they're doing us a favor, and we don't notice mm. it. So, like, people come up with a book with no price on it. Like, oh, you found it outside? You can have it. We can't claim yeah. that. But that's not even that big of a problem. More, more than anything, um, and, you know, Bart's is largely in the business of stories. It's a good story. Mm. It functions as marketing. And, like... I was kind of surprised over this last holiday season how many of the, the 50 cent books we have outside have sold. And it's 50 cents now. It was like 35 cents 10, 15 years I ago. I remember. But that 35 is a very awkward number. 25 made a lot of sense. I don't know why they didn't jump straight to 50. But I don't 
people haven't adopted dollar coins that they that, <laughs> the way they wish that we would. Maybe they will now that now that a dollar is worth a lot less. Now that <laughs> in my mind, a five dollar bill is a one dollar bill, and a fifty dollar is a twenty. Yeah, I feel <laughs> that. Yeah, well, I started my first job a a dollar thirty five an hour. Yeah, yeah. That totally. Inflation is a bitch. I, I didn't start driving until I was in my early 20s. My friends made fun of me. You missed it. You missed the golden age of driving. Dollar was Gasoline was less than a dollar a gallon. I remember. And then this is in like 1994, 95. It would have been less than a dollar oh, yeah. a gallon. It's just like, nope. <laughs> but I don't know what I'm going to do about that. Because at some point, it's going to have to be a dollar. And if people don't adopt dollar coins, it, we're going to have to build a different box in the door for people to pay for the outside books. Because... Mm -hmm. Um, paper currency, but because they function mostly as um, average, it's like a big billboard on the outside of the store. It is absolutely hundred percent. Yeah, and I found some <laughs> very interesting books. I remember uh, my guilty pleasure is either Grisham or Jack Reacher novels, which I'm almost hesitant to admit, but sometimes you just want something fun, I, and I, that's where I got started on the Jack Reacher novels from a fifty cent book. Child, yes, yeah, you know. I don't read as much of that anymore, but I was young. I read everything, especially mm -hmm. in fiction. And my grandmother read uh, mysteries, and I, she took care of me a lot of the time after school. Uh, I read a, I read a, I read two Grisham novels at her house. I read a bunch of the Tony Hillerman books. Oh, I love those. They, <laughs> they did a great uh, TV show, Dark Winds. Oh, based I didn't see on that. Lieutenant Joe Lee Porn and all the goings on. I think they made a movie in the '90s based on one of them. I vaguely recall that familiar. seeing it at drive-in. A movie based on one of them. But this movie stars Zahn <laughs> McLaren, who plays the... He's such a great actor. The character he plays on Reservation Dogs is 180 degrees different than... Yeah, that's a great Lieutenant, show. <laughs> you know, Joe Leaphorn. Yeah. I well, just, I'll have to check that out. I have, a, I have fond memories of those, and it's mostly just the nostalgia of my childhood. But Yeah. Yeah. I, I read... But I read kind of books for entertainment now. They're largely comic books. Oh, yeah. Graphic novels. Graphic novels. Yeah. Who's yeah. your uh, Who's your jam right now? The most recent one I read is a Korean graphic novel called Artist, and mm -hmm. it's about three middle-aged men who are super annoying and just self-obsessed. Are they roommates? No, they're just in, they're just in competition with each other. They're all mm -hmm. one of them is a visual artist, one of them is a musician, one of them is a writer, and it's kind of the story of like their their miserable character and how they hold each other back and how their obnoxious personalities hold them, their careers back because they're just not good people. Are they talented <laughs> though? Sure. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that's that's a great premise. Yeah. I well my you know manga anime my only real exposure was back in the nineties and I'd have young reporters who leave them in the bathroom. You know, they just like you know when they're done with them they just put them on the shelf and yeah and. I remember this one about a Japanese doctor in Germany. Monster, I think it was called. Oh yeah, but yeah, he, that's, uh, that one's a classic. But he um, had it was like this something a uh, crisis of some kind. I don't know, it was an explosion or something. But he had to make a choice between saving this nine-year-old girl, or maybe she's ten or eleven, and the mayor of this German city, who was key to him getting funding for this hospital and they had a very you know conflict driven relationship so he had to be very careful and he could only he had to make a snap decision so he saved the girl the mayor died yeah but manga did a much better job than western comics of handling naturalistic material 
they still have the wild out there stuff, as you can mm. see in all the films that come out and what kids tend what kids tend to like. Yeah. But they they have a deeper and better tradition of naturalistic storytelling in the graphic novel medium than we do here. It didn't really start happening here until the undergrounds. Well, this book I remember being so. At first, I thought the premise was interesting and a great, uh, you know, ethical trolley problem type of dilemmas. But, you know, this girl, little girl turned out to be a monster. That's yeah. the title. Her and her twin brother were some kind of Nazi super gene divisions. And, oh, my God, the rest of his life, you know, atoning for this terrible decision that he made, which seemed like the only logical one at the time as a humanitarian. But just the laws of unintended consequences. What a great vehicle to discuss that. Yeah, so that's my leisure reading mostly. I, I don't read a lot of contemporary novels. Uh, I mostly read older stuff. I, for some reason, I've been really interested in like early modern literature and ancient Greek and Roman novels. Uh, oh, yeah? hmm. I like history, and I'm not good at reading history, so I tend to read literature Usually. from the, from from historical periods. Aeneid? Like <laughs> yeah, stuff like that. Uh, that, that'll read that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of it. It's just the, you know, the humanity on display. It wasn't like anything is really new in this world. It's just, you know, been framed differently in different contexts. So Human behavior is different, but whenever I read that stuff, I have to remind myself, these people are as different from me as, like, any, as an, an alien or a foreign country. Like their way mm -hmm. of life is completely different, their way of understanding the world is completely different, but all the human behaviors are there and the same and on display. Yeah, the avarice and the rage and the resentments and all the mm -hmm. stuff that drives our behavior. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I made a resolution in 2023 to read more fiction, which I had gotten out. I read biographies and history, you know, obsessively. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to get more of the humanity of this, these situations. And wow, you can really learn a lot from, from what, fiction. What's, what's the best biography you read last year? Um, I'm going to look that up because I'm not going to remember. Probably, what did I read? Um, that uh, Code Breakers uh -huh. about Jennifer Doudna and the yep. CRISPR-9, yep. Cas9 Cas CRISPRs. Yep. And anything to do with like I read Grant's autobiography. That might be one of my favorites of all time. I'm not even sure why exactly. It's not like he was this brilliant lyricist with his writing. He was just so clear. And I mean, it's a great lesson for writers to just, you know, compound, just to keep concrete nouns and action verbs. Have you read the Chernow Grant book? Yes, love it. I that's gonna, why I went back to the autobiography. Yeah, yeah, because I was, I'm wondering, I haven't read his autobiography, but I'm wondering how he presents himself, because he's clearly a very troubled and problematic individual. <laughs> yeah, but I think he, the problem with Grant is he was so honest to a fault that it was impossible for him to imagine anybody being a grifter or a con man, even though his dad was a grifter and a con man. He was just, he just had no, because that's why he got all this trouble, the whiskey tax ring and all these these motherfuckers that were just taking advantage of him. I mean, you could do some amateur armchair psychoanalysis on that. Yeah. His father probably made him vulnerable to that his whole life. <laughs> yeah, but he had a lieutenant colonel as an uh, aide-de-camp that kept him out of trouble, kept him away from the bottle. And when that guy died, then all the grifters moved in, and that's where all the corruption, it didn't, didn't, 
start with him, but he didn't stop it either because he just couldn't imagine people being crooked. He just couldn't. And you know, the, what he did with the Ku Klux Klan, the way that he went in there and shut it down, only 9,000 troops. This is a guy that was commanding quarter million or more. But those 9,000 troops kicked the ass out of, you know, Nathan Bedford Forrest and all these, what do they call them, resurrectionists or justifiers or whatever they were calling themselves. Well, I can't recall them. But it was really, what a, what a man who was committed to the equality of all humanity. I just, I was like really, really impressed. So what else are you reading lately? Is there anything people should be reading? Oh, I mean, this is a problem with my, my taste because I'm curious. I tend to go a little bit outside of the middle and my reading is wide, yeah. but also strange. Uh, I read a, uh, an aesthetic theory book on games that was largely focused on video games recently that I really liked. What, the style and design? Yeah, it's about game design, about it, not not about visual style, but more about what makes a game a game and how they mm-hmm. deal with that kind of stuff and what, that is what the fascinating because that's human behavior. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I read, I still re- try to read some philosophy now and then. I'm trying to think of what I, I read recently besides that. But the, one of the things I run into is customers often ask me what I'm reading because they think they want to read what I'm reading because I'm like the book guy. And maybe they don't. No. I, frequently I say, well, why don't you tell me what you're... I, I, when I was new to this, I would ask people what their favorite book was and i make a recommendation on that. But then I realized that many, many people, their favorite book is from their 15 to 25 when they were impressionable and hadn't been exposed that much yet. And they were easy to affect. Mm-hmm. And they're not that person anymore, right? Their yeah. memories of that thing affecting them, but they wouldn't want to read something like that now. No. So I usually ask, what's something? What's the last thing you read that moved you, like intellectually or spiritually or emotionally, or what's the what have you been reading lately? That kind of thing. I'm going to sneeze. Mm-hmm. Hold on. <coughs> there we go. Yeah, and so now I ask that, but sometimes people will ask me what I'm reading. I'm like, I used to just say, you don't want to read what I'm reading, and they say, no, don't, don't tell me, and then I tell them like, no, you're right, I don't want to read that. <laughs> I, for a, my favorite book, maybe four or five years ago, was a breast cancer memoir. And like, mm. it's so common for people to have someone with cancer in their life or to yeah, sure. it themselves. Connect. Connect well, unless people really just want to face that head on, they don't want to read that. Because it was a very angry memoir about being poor and having to get medical attention and raise a kid, and it's just like, it's, it's, it's a stressful thing to read about. And another another thing around this, I have my little shelf of employees' favorites. I don't even know why I bother because people look at it and they just go, whatever. <laughs> I don't want to read any of this. But there's a, a really funny book in there that's been there for way too long. And if it was in any other section, I would have put it outside for 50 cents already that hmm. hasn't sold. And I'm trying to think about how I can get somebody to buy this book and get it out of there. But it's a book on bias in the sciences of researching female orgasms. <laughs> Interesting, yeah, because that goes back to what the Victorians and those vibrator machines for cure female hysteria. Yeah. It's great history that goes along with that. It's not even that historical. It's mostly fa- focused on the last couple, like 20, 30 years, but it's just like, yeah, that's that's not for everybody. It's somebody who's interested in gender bias or science or, and it's just like, I get, but, but like nobody, nobody's picked it up. Nobody's even picked it up. Hmm. Not even once. So, <laughs> seems like there'd be a science guy that you know. So, there's so many problems with. <laughs> I love science, but there's rec, rec- What do they call that? Uh, reproducing the results, recalability. Rec- like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's t- trying to find, you know, verify these studies, and it's very difficult to, you know, do that. 
So yeah, that's that's kind of the problem with like recommending what I'm reading lately. Although I've been making a point now that we're, the new books are a bigger part of our business. Mm-hmm. Um, history is still my weakest area. I, it's hard for me to find a history book that I like. Um, and especially one that's short enough, because a lot of the better history books, the ones I like, tend to be seven, eight hundred pages. And I yeah, me too. <laughs> just stoppers. Yes, that's right. And I just don't want to sacrifice that much of my attention to it. Yeah, it's that's my be, problem. Got to be difficult. <laughs> well, I was going to tell the one uh, book I just finished that I really loved was Burnham Wood mm. by uh, Eleanor Catton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good. I found that you talk about billionaires bugging out and they're. <laughs> They're, uh, what do you call those bug out places? The Oh, bunkers? Bunkers, yeah. These bunker billionaires. Uh, the Facebook guys building one in Hawaii, right? That sounds right. Yeah, well, this bird. one's in New Zealand, which yeah. seems to be a popular place for that. But the best novel I read last year, I think, was Demon Copperhead, Barbara Kingsolver. I like her. I've read other mm-hmm. books by her. I especially like her essays. But... Uh, I, there's the, that's, that is one of the... You asked earlier about reading habits or trends. Yeah. That is something that's happening a lot lately is reinterpreting of classics uh, in all kinds of genres, too. There's yeah, a- just so people don't know that this is a retelling of the David Copperfield saga. And, and it's set in the South? In or, Appalachia, uh, yeah, okay. Western Virginia. Yeah, yeah, Western Virginia. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, I, I, I like her, and I'm kind of tempted to read that. But that, that is part of a trend that's going on right now, and I think it is somewhat connected, although it, it's mutated because it's in the literature world, which is a little different, with the media trend of rec- more and more cycling. Of course, it's always been a thing in literature to borrow from everybody of else. Of course, yeah. yeah. But uh, I think it's become more of it recently. Yeah. I think it was like a palimpsest. People are building on the foundation of the things that came before, which is, yeah. I think that honors the past. And, and to be honest, I'd rather read her writing than Charles Dickens. <laughs> yeah, although I love Dickens. Oh, I know this one that I really want everybody to get to is uh, When We Cease to Understand the World. Oh, that's a great book. Benjamin um, Labatat. That, that is one of those books, and this happens to me frequently, where I put it on my list that I want to read. I definitely order to the store with the best intentions. I don't get around to it. And then somebody else blows it up. It was President Obama put it on his list, right? Is that true? I don't know. I just somebody, uh, somebody, some commentary I said that this is the best. No, I was on a podcast. Somebody was talking about this is the best opening chapter of any book in history and i'm like well that's quite a claim and i read i was first sentence on talking about the nazis at the end of world war ii and all the drugs they were taking yeah it was fascinating like Goering had twenty thousand pills left of this codeine derivative that turned his fingernails blue there was a history book that came out a couple years ago that was about specifically about methamphetamines and the nazis yeah the pervitin yeah we sold a lot of that book people Frequently, people like things that are exciting seeming, and nothing's yeah. more exciting than drugs and Nazis combined. Yeah, you put them together, you got a hit. Yeah, yeah surefire recipe. Yes. But this book is more about these brilliant mathematicians and all their quirks and eccentricities. Yes. And I, it's hard to tell where fact and fiction, you know, diverge in this book because it is definitely fact based. Uh, that, that is another big trend in like. I would say sort of the more heady intellectual spheres of literature is navigating or playing with that line of like truth and literature and mm-hmm. fact and fiction where they land. One of my favorite writers who deals with that a lot is David Shields. Hmm. Um, I'm not familiar with that. Yeah, he writes a lot of essays. If you like writing essays, you should maybe check those out. I do. Yeah. Yeah. 
I'm writing this down. Oh, um, uh, Blue Skies, T.C. Boyle. I, Thomas Corrison Boyle. I read some Boyle, too. Um, there he's, was a, on a, he's a friend of the pod, by it, the way. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, had a great conversation. There, there was an uproar in Ojai over the content of a story featured as a class assignment when I was in high school here at North Really? North. Yeah, the story is called Greasy Lake. And it's from a collection of the same name. Um, and there was a lot of controversy because it features a drunken rape scene between high school students. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of public fervor. I, I can't remember the exact nature of the fervor, but, you know, some parents got upset or whatever. It's like, yeah. they don't understand that, like, it, we, there were kids that was happening in high school. It yeah. happened, at, happened in high school while I was there. <laughs> that was, uh, um, you know, Tom Wolfe got in trouble for that Man in Full novel, which, you know, the the premise or the, the spring of the story was a rape college student. That book, I think, is the Tom Wolfe book that I, is one of the banes of my existence. Really? <laughs> it's probably his least popular book, and it was printed. At He's had some amount. pretty unpopular books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that, uh, for some reason, I cannot throw away enough copies of that because nobody ever buys it, and then it comes in all the time. But they buy other Tom Wolfe books. They buy the classics. The yeah. Electric Kool-Aid and uh, what's the... The Right Stuff. Right Stuff, yeah. Every, I get, the Right Stuff is the one they ask for the most because obviously that has the broadest audience. Yeah, a big space astronauts. Well, I liked a man in full because it introduced me to Stoic philosophy in a way that was more than just having this word out there. Yeah, you know, this guy, one of the main characters, not Charlie, the big developer who's the star of the novel, but this prisoner who gets a job as the trustee pushing the library cart around, and he just picks up, you know, the Constellation of Philosophy by Boethius, Mm -hmm. and just. It just brought me into that world and how this character connected with the main character. And it was just, I like Tom Wolfe because he can take something that's going on in culture and expand upon it. But he always seems to be half a step behind. Like, yeah, it's kind of already the zeitgeist. When you're chasing the zeitgeist, it's just too ephemeral. It's already gone by the time you get it out there. Yeah, yeah. You got to be young and in it to do that, and I think he was just a little too old by the time he was writing things yeah. like "I am Charlotte Simmons." <laughs> oh yeah, okay, okay, boomer. Very um, okay, boomer. Uh, that's another thing that. Uh, what were you just saying? You were talking about oh, stoic philosophy. That's another thing that's heavily on trend right now. That's very popular. yeah, Ryan. Uh, shit, Holiday. Ryan Holiday's got yeah. all those books. The, the Daily, Daily Stoic. Stoic. People come in and ask for that all the time. I was at a party the other night where the guy, a guy like the girls went into the other room to look at a wedding dress and the guy pulled yeah. out, I didn't do my Daily Stoic today. And he reads it out loud and we talked about it. It's just like, Stoicism is very popular. And the fact that you mentioned that story, it was someone in prison that was reading it. Mm-hmm. It tends to be popular when things are hard and bad. Yeah. And I think it, there's probably two things happening right now that's making it popular. Times are getting harder right mm-hmm. now for a lot of people. And uh, there's a social media sort of masculine sort of thing that's focused on stoicism because it aligns very easily with classical masculine ideas. I think it does, yeah. Yeah. Just, uh, you know, stiff upper lip and yeah. all that. Yeah. Stoicism. It's a classic stoic. You know, being a Scandinavian that's comes right with the territory. That's right. That's Kierkegaard right. and yeah, that's yeah. that stuff is very popular. We can't can't keep enough Marcus Aurelius in stock. That's the big one mm-hmm. that everybody asks for. And that's one that's so accessible. I don't know why it isn't mandatory reading. Yeah, it only takes a few hours. People should read more Seneca. 
Yeah. <laughs> they should think more about their own deaths. <laughs> well, that was a stoic death for sure. Yeah, yeah. There's a really um, lovely series by Princeton of Stoic philosophers. They're little volumes made four and a half inches high, mm. hard covers, and they reprint selections from a whole bunch of different Stoic philosophers, both Greek and Roman. Mm. But I, what I like about them is they publish the English translation, and then it has either the Latin or the Greek separately, but it has the whole content in both languages. Wow, you have to be a serious scholar to read both Latin and Greek. I've, so if I'm going to read something like that, I like to have the original there, even though I don't read them, because if you want to learn about language, those two languages feed so much into what our contemporary English oh, is. Oh, yeah. I was the last cohort of students in New York State to get Latin. Yeah. I was ninth grade. My aunt, who was a librarian, taught the class. And then that was it, 1974 or 1975. No more Latin in public schools. But that, that had to have been to some help to you as a writer. And oh, my it. God, yes. Right? I mean, yeah. you know, Amosa Masamat, yeah. all the conjugation sounds stupid, but then you see it everywhere. Yep. Everywhere. Yeah. Latin is really, I don't consider it a dead language at all. No, and, and uh, what? Very simple things like just being able to recognize patterns in languages. My friend was telling me the name of this Eastern European thing. He told me the German name of it, but it's uh, Walpurgisnacht. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I've come I, across that. And I was able to know immediately what it means based on the context of the conversation. What is it in some kind of uh, witch Teutonic? Purge, uh, witch purge. Witch night. purge. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you know, I recognize purgis. That obviously comes from the Latin. And I know what noct is. So, like, it's easy. From the context, I can assume that the first part is witch. <laughs> yeah. The um, Well, that's quite a concept because that's going on to this day. Yeah. I feel that a lot of this diversity, inclusion, equity, opposition comes from that sort of, we got to purge the system of all these witches. It's a purity fetish in a certain way. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, it scares me a little bit. Yeah, you should be scared. Yeah. Well, one of, speaking of German books, my, my, one of my favorite authors is Robert Musil. Mm-hmm. Who wrote uh, Die Mann Olga Eigenschaften. Man Without Qualities. qualities. Yeah, yeah. It's a great But book. it's about this... Austrian German societies. It was like the 25th of Franz Joseph and the 50th of Wilhelm. Something there's a guy planning these. These when you say man without qualities, it doesn't mean he was low quality. He was just very protean. He could become anything. Yes. He wasn't stuck in any particular format. But the thing I liked about Musil was he never sold many books in his lifetime. Mm-hmm. However, he did have patrons, a hundred or something of them. They kept him in, you know, bratwurst and uh, beer so he could just continue to write. And I always think about that was like the old version of, what was it, uh, Kevin Kelly, A Thousand True Fans? Mm-hmm. That's what it reminds me of. Just if you have a thousand dedicated fans <clears throat> who will buy anything you put out, you can make a really good living, or at least a decent living, it, and do your art. It's easy to forget in our heavily commodified experience, that yeah. the reason we make art is not to make a living. Hmm. You you have a lot of people. I've had this discussion many times, especially around the music industry with the development of streaming and like people. But we forget that like the twentieth century was an aberration. Nobody ever was rich from making music before that. Yeah, and very few people even made a living at it even before that. And it's just like people still made music. 
Yeah. Well, I actually know quite a bit about Stephen Foster because of a different project that I made. And he was 37 when he died. Hundreds of songs that were the songbook of the day. Like, he was famous. Mm-hmm. He died penniless. But 10 years, his partner, George Cooper, the poet, and some other, got some legislators involved, Walt Whitman, too, and helped create 1875 Copyright Act, which protected some of the copyrights. So he would have been worth tens of millions of dollars in his own time if he had any kind of copyright protection. So it was interesting how these threads all weave together. Like yeah. The same, same thing happened to... Stephen Foster is the same thing that's happened to Metallica. Know, Metallica. <laughs> yeah, although maybe that Lars isn't the best role model for that. But yeah. yep. it's really, it's no different. It's like, why do we make art? What is the value? Should not artists be paid? If we're going to construct a system in which we hold earning money as a way of measuring the value of something? Probably. Yeah. I struggle with that all the time because why should, why should you know, uh, Barry Gordy, or maybe that's a bad example, uh, Quincy Jones or, you know, Scooter Braun or all these people make tens and even hundreds of millions of dollars and then these artists get screwed. Well, the other question of this, and this is a question that I hadn't considered, but Dave Ray, who used to run Bart's, asked me during the rise. Oh, speaking of Dave, is he in, still in Pueblo? He is. He yeah. sent me a picture of his temperature the other day. It was three degrees. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like probably noon. a, a heat wave. At yeah. noon, yeah. No, no, no. He said we only get a couple of these a year. But like, yeah. Yeah. But uh, he posed to me when we were talking about streaming and downloading and stuff. like, But especially like using programs like Spotify and stuff to play your music, like... Why are people willing to pay for a platform but not the thing that makes the platform viable? Mm-hmm. Like, why will people pay for hardware but not the thing that goes with it? Like, you'll buy the iPod or the phone, you'll buy yeah, the computer, or the Sega or the, and you'll buy the earbuds. PlayStation. Why won't 5. you buy the thing that makes you want that thing in the first place? Mm-hmm. <laughs> why is that? Do you have thoughts? I don't have an answer. Um, I probably could ramble on it after a while if I thought about it some more, but it's yeah. like. It's, I'm not even going to go there. There'd be a whole other conversation. <laughs> yeah, I, I struggle with that. It's like, uh, it's just like one of those contrary impulses in human nature that we're not, the rewards don't go to the producers of value. Yeah. Again, I'm not even sure that art has the sort of value that comes with that. Like, it, its value is completely different than that. <laughs> Yes, I know. It's a, it supersedes the, but still, you gotta pay. You gotta have a roof over your head and food in your stomach. And so th- that's wh- that's where it comes down to. Is like you're gonna get the kind of art that comes out of how that art is produced and consumed, and the art we have that we produce and consume now is heavily commodified for the most part. And yeah, yeah. So not you, all of it, though. I see people are still. You know, I think about people like Donald Judd who make these massive outdoor installations. How, like, he does, how does he make money? How does he afford he, he just a, the material cost? He, he has a gallerist that floats the, cost of, flo- floats the cost of all of that. Yeah. At his level, a, blue chip, A-list art, you, I, you know, I ran a small gallery in town for a little while. Oh, I didn't know that. What yeah, The Basic Premise, down by the Ohio Pub. Oh, yeah, yes, of course. Me and Teddy. Performance space. That was yeah. pretty awesome. I, I've yeah. been to some events there. That was yeah, really yeah. fun. 
But at the level of blue chip, all of that stuff is subsidized and paid for by galleries and people with wealth who act as patrons. Yeah. And you get a di completely different kind of art out of that milieu than you get out of somebody making art on their own independently, doing graffiti on the street. Like, people will make art by whatever means they have if they want to make it. Mm -hmm. And you, we as a culture get art that comes out of the systems we have that support or don't support it. Yeah. And so, well, it's good. It's interesting you bring up graffiti because I think of Basquiat and Keith Haring that came out of that subway culture in New York in the late 70s and early 80s. And they they did their thing regardless of whether they're getting paid or not. That's right. And then Basquiat, I don't know, maybe he was selling paintings for 70, 80 grand or something in his very brief lifetime. But there are millions now. Yep. Yeah, well, that that's one of the things with commodification. Ultimately, the artists can't own stuff past their lifetimes, and you end up with estates. I saw that Prince's estate is already oh, battling wow. with themselves and, and, and other entities about control of his music, and it's just like, yeah, that, that's going to happen because ultimately it's become a commodity. <laughs> yeah, well, Prince, I still feel that loss. Things changed when Bowie and Prince and... and um, Tom Petty died all in the space of a few months. Yeah. It just, the world feels less without Prince, Tom Petty, David Bowie in it. But I can still go to a hardcore show in Oxnard and share a communal experience that's real art. Oh, yeah. Speaking of which, <laughs> yeah, the Nardcore scene, were you part of that? Not really. Uh, I had my, my friend Graham, who grew up in Ojai, mm. his band Annihilation Time recently played over there. They haven't really been a band that's been performing regularly for yeah. seven or eight years now. But And he lives in Australia now. But mm. uh, they played, so I went to go see them, and I saw a bunch of other bands. And I, I have seen some Nardcore shows. He used to did put on anybody shows. Make it, did anybody make it out of that scene? Uh, I'm trying to think no, anybody that sort like of small, transcended it. Small regional but it was, stuff. For people who don't know, that was a very vibrant scene through the early 2000s, maybe to 2010 or something. And Ojai was part of it. Big um, part of it. We had yeah, show, the women's club. We shows there in the 80s even. Yeah. And in the early 2000s, it was Graham who was putting those shows on. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think of... And our, our local band, Charman, who I do art for, plays shows in Oxnard regularly. Oh, really? They're, they're associated with that scene. I'm yeah. going to po post that up. <laughs> I'm trying to... Oh, Anderson Pock, he came out of Oxnard, too. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah. that? Oh, he's brilliant. Yeah, so so that's all art that's happening, and no one's making a living out of it, you know? Like, well, Anderson.Pock is yeah. making a living. Yeah, yeah, he is, but none, none of those... like. Even the biggest nerdcore artists, I don't think, ever made a living from it. They can make a little dough playing a show, so they're not they're they're not paying to play. But like, yeah, I had some notion in the early mid two thousands, ox uh, nerdcore was going to blow up. <laughs> it could have. No. Oh, uh, something else before I forget when early pandemic, like one of the first live shows that I attended was at the Women's Club, and it was Will Chef from Ockerville River and Damian Gerardo, who I just absolutely adore. Yeah, yeah, I saw you there. Well, you were the only person I recognized there. Did you recognize any Ojai people there at all? There were people that I know that are either regular visitors to Ojai or maybe own a vacation home here or... But, but there was no... I was wondering, I, do you guys understand what's... These are arena acts they used to be anyway yeah and they're playing our little women's club that Gerard was really amazing dorado's probably a little bigger than the women's club 
Yeah. <laughs> and I I saw a little bit after that when saw Bill Callahan at the Deer, Oh, the at the Deer, Deer Lodge. Lodge. And so did Joseph Arthur play yeah, at the yeah, Deer Lodge. That's right. And so we this is part of the changing character of Ojai, but like and this is one of the reasons that Bart's is able to expand is because of the tourist traffic. Without that we wouldn't be what we no, are. People tourists are great. I'm yeah. sorry. They're well they're they're, they're a mixed bag. Let's be honest. Yeah. Like everything they, is a mixed bag. But the reason why we have so many great restaurants and the reason we have Bart's Bookstore, yeah, it wouldn't exist without tourists. Bart's books would have been here in the '80s without tourists, and probably the '90s. But it wouldn't be here now without tourists yeah. because it's the tourist traffic. And I already mentioned earlier that I am looking forward to a future where retaining employees is going to be more and more difficult. Yeah. And the only way I'm going to even be anywhere close to competitive wage-wise is if that tourist traffic continues. Yeah. If that if that dies out, the price of Ojai isn't going to go down in terms of cost of living, but I won't be able to pay anybody anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like you can, you know, price of real estate goes up, but like it was going up 25 or 30% in the first years of the pandemic. Wages certainly didn't double over three years. No. Wages, my wages did not double, but they increased 25, 30%. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're doing better than me. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it was just like, what about the events? You mentioned uh, Emma being your event coordinator, but what what could you see happening? Like, where would be the the groove? So, so I mentioned, and I I truly believe this that the command the the notion of community, as I'm using it, is capable of shifting and growing and changing. But ultimately, any events that we host have to serve a community. And that community includes and mostly is residents of Ojai. We've experimented with trying to reach out and we've, we definitely send our events to the concierge at various hotels and stuff. Mm -hmm. But most of the people who are tourists who end up coming are people that visit Bart's that day and like, oh yeah, we'll come back. Yeah, like, I could see that. We had, well, another comic book related event we had before Emma was the events manager was we had a bunch of women who published a thing in the 60s called Women's Comics through Last Gasp out of San Francisco. One of the I've heard of that that publishing house. Yeah, yeah, a really important underground publisher. And Women's Comics was the premier place for women cartoonists to be featured, and they did it themselves. And I was approached by one of the editors, and we got maybe like six-eighths of the major contributors of that to visit Bart's. And it had fairly low attendance because we didn't... It's a niche. And we didn't have a regular program. I think yeah. Emma running a program that, even though the, the timing and days aren't regular, is... Just knowing that here's a place that hosts events. And, what, and it happens one or two times a month during our on-season. Mm -hmm. Brings it a, a more regular audience. Yeah. But there were people there that day that are like... I had women say to me, like, she's like, yeah, I was getting ready to leave, and I, I thought I smelled some feminism. <laughs> <laughs> so she hung out and just stayed just for that. Yeah, the smell of feminism in the morning. <laughs> yeah, so, so all, the events need to serve the community of the residents of the Ojai Valley and the patrons of Bart's Books. Yeah. And... And, and as much overlap as possible. Yeah, and and for us, I mentioned that I think it's a possibility in the future we may have large, major published mainstream authors. Um, there's a, a woman who published a book recently, Mother Daughter Murder Night. That's uh, that's a great title. Yes, great title. She's first time fiction writer, She's a scientist by training. She, her parents live here in town. They're good customers of mine. And she got picked by Reese's Book Club, and her book's doing really well. Like, And it's things like that. We're like, oh, it would be nice to do an event with her at some point, maybe for her next book, or maybe, you know, like things that have some association with the valley or serve the needs of the valley. Emma has programmed a lot of natural history or 
natural sciences. Oh yeah, it wasn't Obi Kaufman. Yeah, um, yeah. She she developed a good relationship with Heyday, who publishes a lot of California-specific yes. stuff. Oh goodness, yeah. A great publisher. Kit just did a review of that great photographer writer lives in L.A., but he's goes all over the place. Yeah. And, and so things that, like that, I think, particularly serve our community, and those mm-hmm. relationships serve our community, and, and things that can help both expand what that community means, like bring in people that wouldn't previously have been patrons of BART's and see that we're offering something beyond that. Um, one of my, my favorite things that we've done is the Addiction Magazine. Did you come to that? Mm, no. So Jeff Grimes is a local writer and educator, hmm. and him and some pals published this magazine, Addiction, a couple years ago, which is about surfing. Um, really? Yeah, and it's a it, it's a very because surfing is a culture as much as an activity, and it's more it's expansive to the level of culture more than any other magazine I've ever seen in terms of what people think and write and do who are surfers or around surfing. So we did a big event for their second issue, and they, they, I think they were really ambitious at first. And they're like, oh, we're going to do bi yearly or quarterly, and they're like, eh, we're going to do maybe once a year. <laughs> well, I've, trust me, it's a it is a rough way to make a living. It's yeah. just well, they're not making a living for it. This is a passion project. This is a passion project. Yeah, and yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm maybe. They will someday. Maybe it'll become a profitable endeavor. I get people that ask me for it all the time. People, especially, are trying to hunt down the first issue, and Jeff is oh, asking. Yeah, it's already a collector's item. Yeah, should I reprint it? I'm like, no, I don't think you should. Maybe no, the value will go up. Maybe if maybe if in ten years you're still around and like you're doing really well, you publish a compilation book. You book a book, yeah. the best like ever. Something Mad like that. Magazine is doing that now. They basically shut down the title. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I think. Well, that's I the had way uh, Sergio on for the 60th anniversary of his cartooning for Mad Magazine, which just happened to coincide with their final issue. You know, that office right over there, visible from your window, used to be his studio. Oh, yeah. Well, that used remember to be that. here, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's moved to a couple different And places. Linda, he was always getting chased out by uh, Linda Weinman and Linda.com. Yes. Yeah, I uh, I like to joke that I was one of uh, Linda.com's earliest employees. Is I, that true? Not really. <laughs> I got, you were just in the... Same space. My my friend Chris worked was worked for them early. He did a lot of editing for them. He is a software guy and an IT guy, and also a good writer. Studied literature in college, and uh, he ha- he was one of their earliest employees, probably the, their earliest employee. Linda and employee Bruce. number three or and, something. And I worked down at Java and Joe, and they they hired me to move some office furniture for it one day. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, well, you were supplying them with the fuel, the caffeine, and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, uh, he he was getting chased out by them. He has a he has a studio on his property now, as I understand. He mm-hmm. built something there. Yeah, he doesn't get out much anymore, unfortunately. His uh, He's getting older. His daughter mo- is very concerned about him getting COVID. And he's got mobility issues. And, and yeah, he's a little he's, stiff. He's around pretty and, good for and, an 86-year-old man. Yeah. And he's another guy. You know, I first met you outside of Java and Joe, but he's another guy that used to go to Java and Joe all the time. Oh, yeah. We used to get together once or twice a month or every other month to have coffee. And it was like something I really looked forward to. And, and you know, you think Mad Magazine, he's, he's like a world-famous cartoonist. He is. One of the most famous cartoonists in the world. Yeah, and I think a lot of that can be attributed to him doing a lot of comics that are wordless. Yeah, the visual display of humor, it's, it is a distinct art form. Yeah, and I may, be, I may be misremembering this from his biography, but didn't he study mime? I think he did have some acting theater background yeah. in Mexico City when he was first in his teenage yeah. years. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. His dad was in the business. He was a director. Yeah, the Mexican film business, which was very vital, yeah. robust Still is. industry. Yeah, I guess if you look at the 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 three, Inaratu and 
Del Toro, and then the third one, I forgetting. Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch more that haven't made the jump, right? So yeah, like, but these three are probably three of the five or six or ten best filmmakers in the world. Yeah, I do think there's that um, critical mass of creativity that can be a friendly rivalry or competition that people, they always say the perfect example is John Lennon and Paul McCartney, how they're always trying to outdo each other. They're always trying to come up with a more clever riff or a lyrical twist or something and how that drove the success. That's another cultural cycle and trend that I observed through the lens of Bart's books. Mm. Um, early on, 2012, 2013, I would get these and they became progressively more annoying because people, the people that were asking me this question just had a completely different purpose for this. But they, they not at first subtly and then later not so subtly would ask me things like, what, were any books you read, anything I haven't heard of that might make a good movie or TV oh, really? show? Yeah, and you know, Ohio's always had its associations with the industry, but like these are people that are up here and I didn't clock it at first, but these are people working for streaming services that were hungry for new content. Really? Yeah, and and, and you think about the, the rise of streaming about 2012, 2013 is about right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and part of that cycle is they stopped asking. Why did they stop asking? Because they, they, they built and hired full-time reading departments to do that, specifically. Oh, wow, I'd they, love to get that job. They scaled big enough that they just have, a, there's probably three to five people in the department, right? Yeah. <laughs> but still, the streaming services are over capacity and people aren't making money and it's gonna consolidate, it's gonna- Sure, that, to. well, that was part of, that's part of the cycle, too. But the, the consumers, um, like myself, got great benefit from that. Yeah. So that, that, it's gonna that, be hard to go back to squeezing the tube back down to the way it was. Yeah, it was just funny to observe that cultural cycle happen through the lens yeah. of being like asked. And, and like a good story, the, the best books are ones that make the most of being a book, which means they're hard to translate into another medium. Yeah. Like people do an okay job sometimes with some really difficult ones, but the the best books to translate into another medium are ones that are kind of average and don't make the most of their own medium. So, so, yeah. Something like The Godfather is ripe. Yeah, that was just pulp, pulpy yeah. novel. That That's was right. not great literature. Yeah, it's ripe for expansion and, and elevation. Yeah. I, I don't like the word elevation, but like it's it's ripe for to be built upon. It's a good foundation. Yeah. A good, well, those characters to bring in such brilliant actors, that's what made it sing. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and conceiving it, it just, yeah, again, just giving it more subtlety, <laughs> a little yeah. nuance. That's great. So, so the best books are really hard to translate in that way. Yeah, you know, I started reading Sally Rooney a few years ago. Uh -huh. I'm not sure why. I have nothing to do with these, you know, artsy Dublin you know, girls. Well, it doesn't seem this way outside of my context. It's also a very young millennial type of book. Yeah, but <laughs> I enjoyed the hell out of them. She's a good writer. It's not for me, but the normal people. I did not see that show, but I heard good things. Yeah. I heard it was a good show. But to me, it's her ability to bring me into a world that is so different from my own. I really think that's like the the great value of literature, I think, is building empathy and understanding. So you read some crime novels or some mysteries for... For fun. Di diversion? Um, 
I've got a couple of, I have a Grisham novel right here that's uh, got waterlogged. Did you ever read any of the classic noir? Do you read Chandler or Hammond or anything? Oh, yeah, Dashiell Hammett. Okay. I, I have a recommendation for you. I might as well make it while we're talking. But, yeah, uh, of course. There's a writer I really like, and I don't read a lot of that type of genre anymore, but named Yuri Herrera, who writes in Spanish. You uh, you Y-U-R-I, and then Herrera, H-E-R-R-E-R-A. Yeah. Um, but he writes, he just wrote some science fiction that I haven't read yet, but he wrote a, a trilogy of noir novels, mostly based in and around the culture of Mexico City. Um, Love it. There's one called The Transmite. They're, they're heavy on atmosphere and a little light on plot, but yeah, they're, okay. they're also short. Um, one of them, my favorite, The Transmitigation of Bodies, is about this like kind of scumbag lawyer guy in Mexico City mm. that has to, it's during a plague. It was written pre before COVID, but it's, there's a, some kind of plague in the city, and the children of two opposing gangs die in one another's territory. The son of one and the daughter of another. Oh wow! So it's a vengeance plot. No, he has to, he he has to arrange for the exchange of these bodies so that a gang war doesn't set off. Wow, <laughs> that's a great premise. Yeah, I can see that. It's real short and real simple. It's not complex, and it's got a lot of atmosphere. And so he's got this trilogy of novels. You might enjoy them. I probably would. Yeah. Another uh, speaking of Mexico City and that literary culture, R Roberto Bolano, the twenty six sixty six. I haven't read. I haven't read that. I've tried that book twice, and I, it's just it's too much. Thick. Of a, yeah, I hooked with that book because I spent a lot of time on the border in Douglas, Arizona, and Sierra mm -hmm. Vista, Bisbee, where I was a reporter, and those issues. But that the Maquila plants mm -hmm. and all those El Paso Eagle Pass murders that went unsolved and what was going on there. It was very mysterious. Yeah, I read his book. So he went right at that. 2666 went yeah. right at that. I would recommend anybody read any of his books. He's a great writer. Great writer. Uh, well, he only has two books. Right? No, he's got a ton. Does he? Roberto Bolano? I <laughs> he's got go. a ton. Oh, I'm my my favorite is probably that. a short one called Distant Star. But I've also read The Savage Detectives. He's got a ton of other ones. Yeah. Um, uh, and he, some, of them, some of them have only been translated in the last 10 years. And he also has poetry. I think I might have known that. <laughs> but he was only like 50 years old when he died. Kind of a Stig Larsson type of yeah. death. And many of his things hadn't been translated yet at that time. A lot of them have been translated since. But there's stuff from the 90s, that's shorter novels, that have already been translated too. Yeah. He reminds me a bit of... I'm trying to think. Not well, maybe a little bit of Robert Musil, but shoot, the world builders. You know, I'm, I'm blanking now on who I was associating Roberto Bolano with, but oh, um, not Dave Eggers. Um, who was the Yiddish Policeman's Union? Shaban. Michael Shaban. That's what he kind he of has the, the same a couple voice. Years ago. Really? How did you recognize him? I didn't. I wasn't there that day. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, but, but he bought some Star Trek stuff because he was working on the new Picard show. On the what show? The, 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 I don't even know which season it was. It's had multiple seasons now, but they did a, a Next Generation Star Trek Picard TV show. And oh, yeah. I, think he, I didn't I, know he was involved. I think, I think he worked on that, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. But he bought some Star Trek like uh, ship manuals and that kind of stuff. Wow. My, my, so the bad my, similitude. My, my employee mentioned that he was there. <laughs> wow. Did they know who he was? I mean, did they like I think somebody? They I think they did, yeah. Because uh, it wasn't, it was a couple years ago, but trip karaoke night at the Hub on a Saturday night, Jack Harlow was there. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> Why? I have no fucking idea. I haven't been to the Hub in a very long time. <laughs> I didn't know who he was. <laughs> yeah. And people were, oh, it's Jack Harlow. 
we're, we're both probably too old to know who he is. <laughs> yeah. And so he, you know, made a big ripple um, just popping in for just probably, you know, I imagine it was like a stag party or something. They're all staying at the yeah. end or something like that. But, you know, then I go, oh, really? I should have known who he was. My, my favorite writer that's coming to the bookstore um, that I rec- I didn't recognize him because why would I? I haven't read it in his book since I was a teenager. But um, I was telling the story last night um, because the film came up. Do you remember Alive? The, oh, the, the, about the Andean crash and the yeah, cannibals? The, the soccer team, yeah. So I, that was like the first adult book I read when I was like 13. And I remember high. that book, yeah. And I think that a movie had come out around the same time. That's probably why I read it. But uh, uh, Pierce Paul Reed came in. And I was, I, he, he just mentioned, oh, yeah, I wrote that book. I'm like, oh, that's wow. great. This is the first, book, first adult book I read. It was really nice to meet you. Like, That's pretty cool. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah. So yeah. any, uh, any uh, you know, going back to those, you know, changes in the industry and, and so forth that now recycling back, where is that going? Like, what's, what's next? What's the next hot genre? I don't know. So we were, we were talking about the interface of the novel and other books with popular media and um, that's intensified to a point where like you know every, everybody writes about how smart Reese Witherspoon is for a book club because it's you know A-B testing for film production mm-hmm. so something that used to be kind of random or inspired is now like very it, institutionalized and structured like this novel has this potential for this and you know the uh, it's a question like that. I talked to the author of Mother Daughter Murder Night, and she's like, "Yeah." So the big question for me is, do I write another novel and make it a series, or do I write something completely different? Mm. And how does this choice affect my potential future as a pu- as a, a published writer? What did you? What did you? What was your advice? I, there's no right answer. Like if you if you do the one, do you get stuck writing with one set of circumstances and characters and aren't able to really explore? Or if you go the other way, does it fail and you lose your career? There's no way to really know until you do mm-hmm. it. It does seem pretty random. Yeah, and it's like, and do you want to pursue a career as a published writer? It's you know, not, a novelist who makes money, like you got to stick around for a couple books before you see a dime. Really, like yeah, unless the you first get really contracts, lucky. you're getting like seven and a half percent or maybe ten if you're lucky. Yeah, you're not going to make a living as a Barely novelist. It's, it's rare to earn out your advance, even even the literary novelists that make big cultural impact probably don't make a lot of money from their books. Yeah, you might be surprised. I know there's some, not, this is a music business, but an article in Esquire or something was like something, why your favorite band doesn't own their own house. Yeah, yeah. And they were talking about, um, not Vampire Weekend, um, Great Harmonies, Brooklyn. I don't know. Beckettimist. I don't know. <laughs> but they... You know, they were they were big. They sound like the Beach Boys, brilliant band. And they just like, you know, they're touring all the time. They got hit records and they're just not making that much money. Yeah. Unless you're on unless you're touring 200 nights a, a year. Yeah. And and one of the best ways this goes back to what I was discussing to, for a writer to make money is to get those film rights secured. Absolutely. You pro- probably make tens of thousands of dollars from the film rights. Even, you know, if you have a really exciting first novel, you might make, you probably make more from that than you will from the. I'm sure. Yeah. And I think you got to be out in public all the time. You got to be pimping. Yes. Got to be pimping straight up. But then that, that creates strange incentives for the style of books people write, right? Yeah. <laughs> I know. 
And that's back to the idea of like we get the kind of art that we're able to support the systems that we have. And always does, huh? I mean, yeah. uh, Renaissance artists, they were they were working for, for the patrons. That's right. That's well, there was a great um, exchange of correspondence. I think it was PDQ Bach on public radio or something, some funny segment about Bach. Like this series of letters, he went to get paid for a cantata or something. And it would start out with, you know, the Prince of Hesse would be your your gracious majesty. And he'd be so at such florid, you know, subservient, groveling prose. And then when he goes down to the minister level, he gets a bit sharper. And by the time he gets down to like the deacon of the church that stiffed him, then he is just outrageously mad. But just the progression of Bach's attitude towards this person, these people who wouldn't pay him. It was it was hysterical and kind of sad too. Yeah, there's some entitlement to that too. Yeah, there's like a I don't know. It's a tough business. I wonder what what's the future look like? Do you know? No. You must think about it. <laughs> yeah, but you know the black swan idea. Like, there's there's going to be plenty of those. Yeah. Like. You could say something like nobody saw COVID coming, but lots of people did. Mm-hmm. We're just unwilling to, or structurally unable to adequately prepare or cope as a society. Yeah. <laughs> I love the black swan discussion because I'm a big fan of um, Nicholas Tlaib Tassim and about, you know, with the unknown unknowns, That's right. the things we don't know. Yeah, people made fun of Rumsfeld for that, but like, no, he's talking about something real. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the con- the one, and the book started out with a scenario about what if this risk-adverse financier built a casino, covered every single possible angle of risk. Everything was fully insured. He's investing three or four billion dollars. He needs to know his money's safe. What happened was a disgruntled employee who wasn't even an employee; it was a subcontractor left a bomb in the parking garage. No insurance for that. Yeah. And then the the worst was, you know, this his big act, this big headliner act. One of the tigers bit a woman and reached over and grabbed a woman by her beehive hair. Yeah. Thinking that was a threat and then grabbed the Siegfried or Roy, I don't remember which one, by the head to drag him off stage to protect him. But the tigers don't know their own strength. Yeah, you can fit the whole guy's head in his mouth, and doesn't and plenty of room left over. Yeah, no, no insurance policy covered that. That and also that just reminds me, like we should know better. That Werner Herzog film about the guy with the bears, like oh my god, Grizzly a, Man was great. Timothy Treadwell. It's it's a it's a wild animal. No matter what yeah. you do with it. <laughs> but the explanation that Werner Herzog, who I adore, was. This was the second wave of bears that came down, and they were hungrier and meaner. Timothy Credo didn't know these bears at all. Yeah, He knew the first batch of bears because he'd see them every year, and they knew him, and, you know, this, these bears are like nine feet tall, and he just comes up, Mr. Bear, would you back down, please? This isn't the time for this conversation. And the bear's like, whoa, 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 and goes back off to the stream to get salmon. But yeah, it's like you never know. You that, just don't know. That is definitely one of the futures. Is like we, we obviously we're we're having a conversation, we're recording now with the idea that people will listen to it. We live in a heavily media saturated environment. Mm-hmm. Um, Herzog has a memoir out 
Uh, oh, really? I'll yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's supposed to be really funny. He's a really good writer. Uh, I haven't read it yet. My friend opted for the audiobook because he narrates it himself and he gets to hear oh, I love that voice. <laughs> best voice of ever I don't know if you do audiobooks I can't because I can't they can't I hold my been attention able to no I signed up for audible for like one month and I quit yeah they can't hold my attention no even if I'm driving my podcast. attention my attention drifts even if I'm driving well you think this is the media saturation attention economy <sighs> it's just fractionated yeah and you know it's harder to read than ever. I don't. I don't think books are going away. They're, they're always going to be a thing. It'll be a mm-hmm. niche thing. A but, delivery mechanism. Yeah, that's right. More and more, probably likely more. You know, we've seen the phenomenon of big podcasts publishing books. We we know that any politician in a major election will have a book within a year or two. Of yeah, that, that. campaign biography. That's right. They have to happen, and that's just part of saturating that media environment. Like, mm-hmm. um, they're a good tool again for monetization if you have if you have an, a large audience already they're not yeah. great if you're a writer who's trying to write something without an audience yeah but if you're a big big huge podcaster or some other media influencer a book's a no-brainer because well, you can also, just commodify a friend it. of mine is a ghostwriter and it, business blew up during the pandemic everybody wanted their memoirs uh-huh but his standard client would be somebody who is you know very interested or an expert in their particular topic like this one woman is former beauty queen, uh, presentation in a man's world, how to, you know, hold your space and whatnot. It's a great topic. I helped write that book. And she just, like, went out on the speaker's tour. She's torn behind this book. She didn't really have an audience before that. She did in a way, but that was her career. She's still flourishing. Yeah, and if you're you're in the self-help, self-improvement growth environment and market. Is that still growing or is it reached capacity because there's so many new titles you can't even keep up? I don't know enough about it, but it's certainly one of the most popular subject areas. So that means there's sales happening. But the other part of that is in terms of monetization, you're talking about this particular use case. It's a vehicle. This is part of it being an older media format. It's a vehicle that legitimizes in a way something like a podcast or a film or even a film doesn't. I think that's it. It's a credential. That's right. Yeah, and you take that and you take it on tour. You get make more money from the speaking tour because you're getting paid absolutely than you do for the book. But you sell the book too, and you make mm-hmm. a little money from that. And people are just like, oh yeah, this is uh, my person here. I've... And that's the role it serves in politics. It's a credential. Yeah, I am a literate person who can present a story about myself, and yeah. here's my story, and you're going to eat it up because you're part of my base. I wonder if any of them have actually ever written their own books. Probably they probably have a hand in at the very least. Like the, the amount of ego involved to run for president, you got to at least read your own book. <laughs> really, Donald Trump never read his book. Yeah, probably not. But he also has like ten or fifteen books, doesn't he? He's got a lot of books. Does he? I don't. Know. All I know is the art of the deal. He's got at least two that I know of. It's, hmm. You know, and it, it entertains me to no end that we have a section for presidents in our bookstore, and that the art of the deal now lives in that section. Oh, yeah. Every time I shelve one, I get a funny little smile on my face. I bet. <laughs> yeah. Well, I still think Grant's biography is the autobiography is by far the best. Well, maybe I'll read a little bit of that. I'm, cu- I'm curious. Yeah. I'm well, always... every, Mark Twain, you know, yeah. everybody gives him credit for being his editor. He said he didn't touch a single word. All he did was help him get the money to get it printed and distributed. It was all Ulysses S. Grant in yeah. those final six months of his life while he was dying of jaw cancer and great pain. Oof. It was brutal. 
And, you know, the story was his son-in-law, another example of him just being congenitally unable to distrust people, got him in some really bad investments. He lost everything. Got one of those early Wall Street Ponzi schemes back in the 1870s or whatever, 1880s. Tragic that this great man who cleaved together a nation. Cleave is a great word because it means both separate. It means both things, yes. <laughs> but he cleaved together this nation through the just the crucible of fire like that. I think if you have a bad attitude towards Grant, dig in a little bit and find out how much he was, you know, personally responsible for any of these scandals. Not at all. He just trusted people who he shouldn't have trusted. He his Rollins, his advisor, had died, you know, not long after the Civil War who would screen all the bullshit artists away. And it was just that sort of openness and authenticity and honestness. We just don't have any of that left anymore. I, I don't have any bad feelings for him. I, it's easier to humanize presidents the further away they are. Yeah. And many, a lot, we like to aggrandize them and think of them as great men, but many more of them were regular people than our politicians Absolutely. are now. <laughs> Well, Grant was so interesting to me because he had been such a flop and a failure and everything he'd done. He got drummed out of the army for being a drunk. He tried to, you know, he's cutting firewood and selling it on the streets of St. Louis. And his his friends from the Mexican-American War were basically supporting him and his wife. He got so bad, he went to work for his brother in the leather goods store in Galena, Illinois, working for his younger brother. That's this man. And it wasn't until the war happened and he started training troops, you know, with this West Point training, that he found his place. None of which, I think, prepared him for being the leader of the free world. No, no. However, I do think that his ability to empathize because of the failures and struggles that he had was an important part of his character. Does he reflect on that in his own writing? Uh, no, he does <laughs> no aggrandizement whatsoever. Yeah. The most interesting part to me was he broke down why Lee was not a great general. Yeah. And that was, you know, you might expect a little bit of triumphalism, but it wasn't that. It was just the analytics of battlefield strategies, and everybody considered him just a head-on, you know, force against force. No, he was a very subtle and fluid strategist. I think he's, he's due for a revision. Anyway, what else going on out there, Matt? I'm just curious what, you know, you're kind of in the middle of Ojai's identity. What is going on? Things have changed a lot in Ojai since the pandemic. Yeah, it was already happening before that. Yeah, I think yeah. sort of hipsterification. I hate to use that word. Well, that's that part's over. We're in a new phase the hipsters now. are gone now. Yeah, that's right. I, somebody was somebody I know is making some jokes and clowning on those types of people. I'm like you should pay attention. That's not what's happening now. You're about five, six years out of date mm -hmm. at least. Those people are mostly gone or have aged, or or have aged out of it. Or have yeah. aged out of that. It's, it, I don't even think it's assimilation. It's just aging out of it. Like, and, you know, we're. I say this with all the mixes, mixed meaning it has, but we're kind of turning into Santa Monica. Really? Yeah. What does that mean to you? Just like lots of pricey art galleries and... Uh, this is not the arts town that people, I think, want it to be. Uh, <laughs> having, having run a small gallery, again, mostly from the standpoint of wanting to have art here that I wanted to see. Yeah. That's why we did it. <laughs> um, but mostly just in terms of the continuing 
increase in cost of living, uh, more and more. Like the biggest thing I, I've seen that happened during pandemic was most of the people at my local grocery store now commute in. Whereas many the workers. Whereas yeah. before that, some of them did, but many of them were residents. Yeah. Yeah. I know. You see it. Yeah. All the people streaming in Ohio in the morning and streaming out in the evening. And all the Amazon trucks and all the other delivery trucks. Oh, man. The route between 10 and 11 o'clock, you'll see a stream, and there's maybe 15 to 20 trucks in a row, and they're all coming in to do package delivery. They're all coming in to take money out of Marine's department store and, and medicine shop. And, and for me, it was 20 years ago where I already made that decision. Like when the sporting goods store over near where the sushi place is now, where it's the Rainbow Bridge accessory store, right? The, the, the dog food place. The, oh, yeah, Dharma Dog. Yeah, yeah. That used to be a sporting goods store. And I used wow, to go there and buy, I buy a, buy a, oh, I sports. I would buy cleats for my soccer stuff. Oh, I'd buy I do a, remember. I'd buy a basketball. Been. I'd buy a pin to inflate my basketball. I'd buy skateboard wheels. You get trophies there. Yeah. When that place closed, at the time, I thought it was the last place I could buy anything that I could use in town. Yeah. But you know, we recently lost the uh, the surplus store. You could oh, buy a fi- you could buy a firearm. Yeah. <laughs> you could buy a firearm. You could buy a pan, a cast iron pan. You could buy yeah, some, all your camping gear and dehydrated foods. You, you could buy affordable clothing if you were somebody that couldn't afford to shop at Rains. Yeah, you get your overalls. Yeah, and, and so that was another place we lost it. So it's just like that. that that's okay though. It's what's going to happen. I have no control of it. But I gave up yeah. when the sporting goods store store closed. I was like, oh yeah, there's not really anything for me here anymore. <laughs> That's a sad realization. Huh? Yeah. And and so when it comes to Bart's relationship to that, and this partially goes into the events, but, but and it also goes into when I started buying the new books, I'm like, yeah, most people are going to buy their new books through Amazon. Yeah. But, and I have very mixed feelings about this as far as a third place, because we're not really a place people can meet, especially not on the weekends with the amount of tourist no, traffic. Not, you know, you're not going to be able to pull a, a barista situation there. No, but but it is a place that you, the citizens and community members can engage in intellectual exchange in one form or another, whether it be selling us our books. And I, I feel a duty to keep the quality of our content in terms of what we offer in terms of customer service, mm-hmm. events programs, and the books we stock to keep it from being just a thing for the tourists. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's that I feel that well, I think the tourists want to feel like they're connected to the local scene in Ohio as, as well. Yeah. I don't think it's one or the other. I think the tourists want to feel like they're getting a local experience. A, a good friend of mine who moved here in the eighties, they said they moved here because it reminded them of Mayberry, which is probably a yeah. reference many people won't get. <laughs> sure, maybe after Andy, Andy Griffith show, yeah, little Opie Cunningham. That's right, and and it's not that now. It's we, we are a coastal elite tourist town. We are a lot of second homes. Uh huh. I haven't checked lately, the, the, but when I first looked at this, this thir- over thirty percent of homes are second homes. But if, even if you don't, even if you haven't watched the sign, you can tell. But the population of Ohio has declined. Yeah, it's too expensive. It's. It's not growing. It's, but, well, and it's the second home thing, too. Yeah. The population of Ohio is declining. It's been aging and declining for years. Yeah, over 20 years. I think we peaked at just a little over eight. A, now a, we're li- barely over seven. A lot of the recent drama at the, uh, the Unified School District is because of earlier members of the school board and the planning commissions not correctly anticipating that decline. Yeah. The, yeah. the enrollment at OUSD is half of what it was when I got here. Yeah. 
And it was already small. Like my graduating class at Nordoff was like less than 200 people. Oh yeah, well it did go up then from there because I think at one time it was so more than that, like quarter two fifty three hundred. Yeah, for, like from that. had a little blip for a moment yeah. and came back down. So, but I one of the things I remind myself: California's growing still, the population's mm-hmm. growing. We are not building to keep up with that in terms of infrastructure in the this our city or the county, and on and you know we 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 have well reasoned. You know, 20, 30 years of NIMBYism, largely mm-hmm. concerned about e- the ecology, which God bless it and preserve it. We need it. But like it, poor planning in terms of the future. Yeah. Or the intractable contrary interests of the people who show up and shake their fists. That's right. That's right. We need we need multi-story density to keep. Well, <laughs> I've, I, that's I've had that conversation for decades. John Brazenly was a very close friend, and we argued constantly about density. Yeah, I think like Manhattan's the greenest city on earth. The, the, the imagination is that you can freeze a place in time and pr- preserve its character and integrity by doing so. That's a but, lot of that attitude and know-how. But you f- if you freeze it in one way, it's going to change in others, and mm-hmm. by which I mean become expensive and unlivable for many of the people that service the community right. and, the, and, the, and the tourists both. Something happens to the character of the community. No matter the what. People who work there can't afford to live there. The teachers and the cops and the grocery store clerks and... The, it's, it's much easier to treat somebody as less than human if you don't have to see their kids at school with your kids, if you don't have to see them outside in the street also patronizing other businesses. Yeah. It's, it, it, well, it's a form of alienation. People get further out. Of, I, I reread recently a great book called Bowling Alone. Oh, Robert Putnam is one of my favorites. Uh, he came up with you that. You have it on uh, your shelf right over there. Oh, yeah. That's one of my... If I'm ever stuck for something to write about, I can open that at any page. So my, my girlfriend Same had it like at her a house. pattern language. Of yeah, one of yeah that's right. Too. That's right. So my girlfriend had it at her house, and I hadn't read it since I was in college, and I picked it up and started reading it again. I had completely forgotten the final chapter. It's like, there's this thing, this information technology coming in. It has great potential to help this solve it. This book came something. out in 2000 or 1999, something Late like that. Late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. And it's like, the last chapter is all like, this thing, this great new information technology will either solve this problem or make it much worse <laughs> yeah well he came did a follow-up he's, he's still at harvard i think to this day but he came with a follow-up called hunkering down about how everybody's retreating to their behind their gated communities and their neighborhoods and they're not interacting with each other and how the information technology has allowed us and even encouraged us to do so and the book was so depressing he didn't publish it yeah he pulled it off the uh, off the you know the list from the publishing house it's it's the minimal self people respond to stresses by retreating yeah <laughs> and the alienation is actually just increases stress yeah <laughs> so uh, and i don't know what the solution to that is but i'd like to think ohio has an exceptional culture is an exception to that. So the thing I really care about, like people argue a lot about like, oh, three-story buildings or building into the nature that it's makes not the place character place. of Ojai. Or that, but the thing I always go back to and the thing that relates to this people interfacing with people who work at the businesses or run the business and that, when you see those people interact with them regularly and build real relationships, you don't have mm-hmm. a relationship with your, your checker at the grocery store if you never have to see them anywhere but there. Yeah. 
that's what deracinates a community because you're not in community with great that person word, anymore. Great word, deracinates <laughs> a community. Yes, it does. That, that's th- then you don't have a community anymore. And as far as the changing character of Ojai, the the loss of that community is the thing that really matters, and that's the part that sucks for me. Wow, <laughs> that's a great note to end on. I'll say one more thing, please, especially I, if it's got a little bit of uplift to it. My my uncle who grew up in Ojai in the '60s and. When I started complaining about this stuff, when I was talking about the, the not being able to get anything I could use anymore, like the sporting goods store, yeah. he said, eh, you know, it was like that in the 60s in Ohio. That's the story of growing up in small town, coastal California. It just keeps changing faster than you can expect. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Matt. Great discussion. Glad to finally get you here. Thanks, Matt. Hey, everyone. Brett Bradigan, just thinking out loud. Uh, conversation with Matt was bracing and intellectually invigorating and stimulating. And I did get around to talking about the big oak tree in the middle of the courtyard that came down roughly the time that, well, little little after Matt's began working there. And how important that tree was to the whole experience, like the peach tree where kids would hang out and read books and just have those sheltering branches, those oak trees, oak tree covering people and protecting them. And just the missing days of Ojai. I think about the Ojai that's gone. I've been here for at least a couple of Ojai turns. I think we're getting better. I hate to be one of those dismal prophets about how we're losing what makes our community special. But I think as long as we've got Bart's coming up on their 60th anniversary, that that cultural DNA is intact. Anyway, that's my thought. That's Brett Bradigan just thinking out loud. We'll keep an ear out for you.